Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. We are back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint, and now we're going to have some fun. We're back with the knower of all things sports. He is the host of the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV. He is the authority on all things sports in New England and Vermont. It is Brady Farkas himself. Welcome to the show. Kevin, man, appreciate you having me. And, uh, hey, I'm on WDEV a lot over the course of the day. What's one more hour? So thanks for uh, letting me hang out with you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I've long wanted to hang out and and talk sports uh, on this show. So now we get to do it. And if you're not a sports fan, don't tune out because we'll we'll make it um, we'll make it appetizing for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, uh, Brady, what's wrong with the Patriots? <laughs> um, they just don't have enough talent. It, it's that simple. They just don't have enough talent, and it's a. Um, a complex issue. I think that they have notoriously not drafted very well, so that set them back for a while, right? When you don't draft well, you don't have young players, you don't have cheap players that are good, so you, then you have to go out and spend massively in free agency. When you spend massively in free agency and then you don't spend wisely in free agency or you spend on the wrong players, then that sets you back as well. So it's just this cycle over the last couple of years that they've gotten into, right? They spent a bunch of money before the 2021 season, and most of those guys are either gone or haven't been productive, right? Nelson Aguilar wasn't very good. John Smith wasn't very good. Hunter Henry has been okay, and uh, Matthew Judon's been good, but now he's hurt. So you throw in poor drafting, poor spending. Bill Belichick, who I still think is a good coach, but as a general manager, he hasn't really adapted with the times, and he's still trying to win the way they used to win. He hasn't done a good job at roster building, then you throw in the usual NFL things, right? Your your schedule changes year to year. So some years it's harder than others. This is one of those years for the Patriots. Also, injuries and attrition come in. The Patriots have had a lot of that. You throw it all together, you get two and seven, which is the worst start this team has had, I think, in, in more than 30 years. Okay, so let's, let's get into this. Uh, I'm a Brady guy. I'm a Belichick guy. I know what you're going to ask. <laughs> okay, go I, ahead. Just and I, and I, I only cut you off in a, in a loving manner because I actually talked about this on the show last night. There are three debates now I refuse to have in sports. Okay, and I think they are the absolute laziest arguments you could have in sports radio. One is Jordan against LeBron. I refuse to do it. One is yeah. Pete Rose being the Hall of Fame. I refuse to do that. And the third one, now on the list as of yesterday, is who was more important to the Patriots dynasty, Brady or Belichick. I refuse to do it. I will answer it for you here, but this is going to be the last time I hope I ever have to have this conversation. I love there, it. I'm not, going to pick, I'm not going to pick a side. And, and I'm sorry if, if you or the listeners want me to take a side or think I'm straddling the fence or whatever. Not every question needs to have an answer. They are both very, very good on their own. They are great together. They needed each other. And for me, it is that simple, right? Bill Belichick is a hard-nosed coach who requires a ton of sacrifice, a ton of discipline, 
and he requires his star players to be bought in so to that, so then it can filter down to the rest of the roster. Tom Brady was that. Tom Brady fit what Bill Belichick does, and Tom Brady fit what Bill Belichick needed to AT. At the same time, Tom Brady is incredibly driven and incredibly willing to sacrifice and is incredibly disciplined. He needed a head coach that allowed him to be that way and then demanded that from the rest of his teammates. They needed each other. Bill Belichick has made the playoffs without Tom Brady. Tom Brady has made the playoffs without Bill Belichick, and he did win a Super Bowl in Tampa. So they have done things on their own. But together, what they did was magical. It will never be replicated as far as I'm concerned. And look, everybody thought when Brady went to Tampa, it was going to be this great thing to get away from Belichick and get out from underneath Belichick's thumb. Well, after two years in Tampa, they got rid of Bruce Arians. Like, Bruce Arians wasn't Belichick enough for Brady. He didn't like playing for him. And they ultimately got rid of him and went to Todd Bowles. These two players, these two people, I should say, they needed each other. Kevin, I don't know if you're into early 2000s hip-hop love songs, but let me tell you one of the best lines in any 2000s hip-hop love song, okay? It goes something to the effect of, I'm a movement by myself, but I'm a force when we're together. I'm good all by myself, but you, you make me better. And that was Belichick and Brady. Yeah, no, I, I agree a hundred percent. It's, but, but can, I want to go back to the bad drafting issue because I'm old enough to remember the days of Rache Caldwell dropping a touchdown pass in the, I think the AFC championship game. And I've always, as much as I love Brady and Belichick, I've always, resented Belichick for not giving Brady the weapons that he needed. I know, I know that he gave him Randy Moss for a, for a few years, but boy, if he had had better receivers, I think they would have won more championships. You know, it's interesting. I think this is a philosophical change in the NFL in the last five or six years, right? Like eh, maybe a little longer than that. You used to not need to pay wide receivers, right? Like, Wide receivers yeah. were kind of like the, the – they were the dessert of the NFL meal, right? The quarterback's the most important. The offensive line to protect him is really important. Defense wins championships, so that's really important. And the game used to be predicated around the running back, right? The running back – when you think about the 90s, you think about Emmitt Smith and Terrell Davis and all these guys, like the running – Walter Payton before that. Like the running back was the seminal figure – on your offense, along with the quarterback, maybe even more important than the quarterback for a long time in the NFL's history. So you didn't need the great wide receivers, and you certainly didn't need to pay the great wide receivers, right? Because you could always win with quarterback play, running the ball, in defense. And that is how the Patriots thought about it, I think, for a long time, right? They had Brady, who was good, but, you know, and, and didn't screw it up. They had a good line. They had a good defense. They had a good head coach. And they were able to run the ball, whether it was with uh, Corey Dillon or, you know, whether it was with Curtis Martin in the 90s or whether it was Antoine Smith or whoever else. The Patriots were able yeah, to run the Steven football, Ridley. not yeah. screw it up with the yeah. quarterback. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, I, I think only recently has it become a wide receiver driven league, a pass first league. And Belichick hasn't, hasn't adapted to that. That's fascinating. You you got to ask though, a a guy who's that bright, that smart, that accomplished, 
and you're saying that he hasn't adapted to changes in the league, that's, that's, uh, that's hard to believe. It's hard to believe. It's hard to hear. And I think that is why Bill Belichick, the general manager, is the problem with the Patriots, right? Bill Belichick, yeah. the coach, is still good, I think, right? Like, I, I think Bill Belichick is coaching these players probably as well as he can. The problem is they're just not very good players. And and yeah. the roster is not built to what the NFL is. The NFL has become a speed-driven league and has become a pass-first league. And everybody always talks about Bill zigging while everyone zags. Well, in this case, the zigging isn't really working. He's trying to, while you're running fast, he's trying to pound you into the ground. And they're just not doing it very well. And what's what's frustrating to me, Kevin, is like the Patriots could play the style that Bill Belichick wants, but they're just not built well enough to do it, right? Like we can debate whether or not a run-first team is going to go and win the Super Bowl. But like I saw the Cleveland Browns in the COVID-2020 season with Baker Mayfield and a really good running attack, and the most money invested in the offensive line. I saw them get to the playoffs and win a playoff game and then almost beat the Chiefs in the AFC Divisional round. Like, they may not win the Super Bowl, but if you want to invest fully in your offensive line and have two great running backs and a quarterback who just doesn't screw it up, you can play that way. And I think that's how Bill Belichick wants to play. The problem is is he hasn't built that well enough to do that. Like, they don't invest in wide receivers. They don't invest in the offensive line. They don't invest in multiple good running backs and they spent all this money on defense and you know, their defense is not as good as it was a year ago. So, I mean, that's the frustrating thing. You can, you can play the way he wants to play. They're just not good enough to do it. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, Since Brady retired, I watch a lot less football, but I got to say, is the Manning cast the coolest thing you've ever seen in your life? <laughs> Wouldn't know. I don't watch it very often. I, oh, I, I just, I love it. I love seeing quarterbacks see, I, talk about what's really going on in the huddle. I think it probably is fascinating. I'll be perfectly honest with you. I don't make a huge commitment to watching Monday Night Football anymore. Like most of yeah. the, most of the matchups are not that appealing to me. So if the matchups are not appealing to me and they don't involve the Patriots or the Seahawks, who's the team I root for outside of work, I tend to not be super invested in Monday Night Football. I will watch it for a bit, but I'm not going to post up for three hours every every Monday and watch it. Like, I don't need to watch Zach Wilson play more than I'm already forced to watch play. So, like, I didn't need to watch Jets and Chargers this weekend. It was a foregone conclusion. The Chargers were going to win. The Chargers won by three touchdowns. I, I didn't want to spend – I wanted to watch the UBM hoops game on Monday night, and I watched the Celtics. I did, you know, so I got to pick and choose, and I don't pick Monday night football all that often because the matchups aren't that appealing. Um, if I think there is a good one, I will watch it, but I will tend to just watch the straight-up broadcast and, uh, and kind of go from there. Okay, before the break, uh, so you're a Seahawks fan. That means where were you when um... – the, when Russell Wilson threw the interception in the Super Bowl uh, against uh, the Patriots? I was at my parents' house in Albany. Um, <laughs> and you know what? I, I wasn't as – I was dumbfounded and I was upset, but I wasn't upset as people want me to be. 
Like you have to understand, Kevin. When that happened, and I was 2010 or so, so I was like 22 at that point, 24, I should say. I had never experienced any winning in my life as a fan. The Seahawks <laughs> won the Super Bowl the year before. Like, right? I had like I wasn't. I, I when the Seahawks won the Super Bowl the year before, I was like, okay, I'm good now. Like anything else is great. Yeah. I wasn't going to go from begging for playoff wins to all of a sudden being upset that they didn't win two Super Bowls in a row. So yes, it was frustrating. Yes, it was a bad play call. Yes, it was a poor throw. Yes, it was a great play by Malcolm Butler. But I had been I would have given my left arm three years prior for them to just make the playoffs and win a playoff game. They won the Super Bowl yeah. the year before. I was good at that point. The most frustrating thing to me was everybody talking to me about it after. And like I was I was in radio at that time. I had just started and you know, maybe a year or two earlier, but like I was working at the radio station and everybody wanted to talk about it there. All of our programming all day was dedicated to it. That frustrated me more than the play itself. Got it. Oh gosh. Fantastic. Okay. We have dispensed with the Patriots and we're on to the Celtics. Um, I'm, I'm having trouble paying attention, but my sons, my two sons, Brady, one of whom coaches in the DC area and the other's a fanatic, uh, high school point guard in Vermont, uh, tell me that I ought to be really excited about the Celtics this year. Celtics are very, very exciting. They are, um, they were the favorite, the betting favorite to win the NBA title coming into the season. I think this is absolutely championship or bust for this team and this organization. And I got to give them a lot of credit because, you know, I, one of my favorite lines is, you know, the show is today, right? So people always say, oh, you know, hey, they made a move, but uh, let's give it some time and see how it works. Well, I don't get to take six months off and then see how the moves panned out. So when they traded Marcus Smart at the beginning of the offseason, I was very against it. I was like, wow, okay, they got worse at point guard. They lost their their heart and soul. They lost their team leader. They got worse on defense. But now, as I has passed, the moves they've made fit together. They look really, really good. And I give them credit. I give Brad Stevens credit for going for it. Like, we see teams that get close that want to run it back, right? And we sit here and say, okay, they were so close last year. These guys are naturally going to get better. And, you know, someone else might get worse. And there might be an injury. And, like, it's right there for the taking. And oftentimes, people are afraid to to break up something that's been really, really good. And we as fans, we as media personalities will judge them for that in the moment. But I think in this case, the Celtics deserve to be praised because they weren't afraid to go out and make the big moves, right? They've been able to constantly over the last couple of years, try to tweak and make big moves and they haven't all worked. Kyrie Irving didn't work. Kemba Walker didn't work, but they have gone out this year and they have created what I think is the best starting rotation in the NBA. They have an elite top six, which is what you need when you get to the playoffs. They have seven or eight, nine guys that can play in any given game. They still have questions. They are still imperfect, but every team is imperfect in some way. But I think they are as close to a complete team as you can get. And they, they should win the NBA finals. It doesn't mean that they're going to, but they deserve to be praised for taking the chances that they've taken, for making the moves that they've made, for being aggressive, for trying to capitalize on a young core for trying to capitalize on the championship window and it should lead them to a title. I hope it does. It's interesting to me that how quickly they moved beyond uh, the, the mini scandal of, of firing their coach 
over time and, and just moving on. Uh, I, Brad, I guess Brad Stevens gets the credit for that, but they, boy, they, they did that very quickly. In terms of what, just that we haven't heard about it much since then, or just that the whole story was kind of like they were quick to act. Yeah, I think they were quick to act and they, and they, they didn't suffer for five years, uh, you know, in in the doldrums, they're they're a contender. They're they're the favorite to win the championship. Uh, it could have been much worse. I think they handled it really well. Yeah, they have good players, Kevin. I mean, and and the NBA is a player-driven league more than any other yeah. league, right? I think the NFL for a long time was about the coach, right? You know, you're. Uh, Vince Lombardi's and your Tom Landry's and your George Hallis's and your Bill Belichick's. It has become about the quarterback in the last decade or so, but the NFL was really about the coach for a long time. Major League Baseball for a while, you really needed a good manager, right? Your Sparky Anderson, your Joe Torre type. The NBA is a player's league. It's been a player's league and it's going to remain a player's league. I'm not saying that Phil Jackson or Steve Kerr have no value, but when you have a young core like the Celtics have had, where you have two of the best, you know, two of the top 25 players in the league, and they're both under you know, 27 years old last year, that's going to set you up for some pretty good success. And then you throw in a guy like Smart, who is you know, almost a decade veteran at this point, who plays hard. They had a good team, and they had a veteran, a veteran enough of a team for that situation to not crater them. And I think that's important as well. Al Horford obviously was there, but... When you have really good players, you can overcome a lot. Yeah, that's so true. Okay, baseball. Um, I'm not a baseball guy. However, I did watch a, a, a half of a game of the World Series, and I was really surprised by how much I enjoyed the speed of the game given the rule changes. And just I wonder if you could comment on the rule changes and how they affected the series and the, the baseball season. Well, I mean, I think there was a great effect, and I got to say, I, I liked them also over the course of the season. And I didn't necessarily know that I would. I, but I'm a baseball guy. That's my thing, right? Through I talk baseball all day, every day. If that's what people wanted to hear, um, I have always thought of myself as a baseball purist. But I have realized I'm willing to evolve as well. I never thought, this, I never thought the time of game was the problem. People would say oh, man, baseball takes so long. It's three and a half hours. It's four hours. And I'm like, you know what? On NFL Sunday, these games are three and a half hours. I see people posting up watching golf for eight hours a day on on Sundays. And, and the, the greatest tennis matches of all time are all five hours long. I'm like, so the, the right. length of the game was never the problem to me. It was always the lack of action. And by the rule changes that they did, they increased more action and they made the game exciting. Baseball has better athletes than it's ever had before, right? You know, yes, you will get the occasional David Ortiz, but they're not a bunch of Babe Ruths running around right now in Major League Baseball. We got guys throwing 100 miles an hour consistently. We got guys running faster than they've ever run before. Unbelievable power speed combos. And you weren't getting a chance to see that on display enough. And these rule changes allowed us to see that there was more running in the game. The stolen base was prevalent like it hasn't been since the 90s. You know, we had Ronald Acuna Jr. steal 70 bases and hit 40 home runs this year. That's a, that had never happened before in baseball. We got to see it this year because 
They made it easier to steal bases. The teams were, were doing it a lot more. There was more action in the game. There was more athleticism in the game. They reduced this, the, the ability to shift defensively, which meant infielders couldn't just be posted up right when the ball was going to go. We got to see their athleticism to go actually make plays. And we got to see more balls that had been hits for 100 years be hits. There was more traffic on the bases. There was more stuff happening. Oh, by the way, they did shave 25 to 30 minutes off the game, which, hey, that's great. I'd take a a two-and-a-half-hour game over a three-hour game any day of the week, too. But the biggest thing was that they got action in the sport. Uh, I saw that Brooks Robinson died, and that—that's. I was uh, I watched him in his prime. Uh, boy, there's nothing like watching YouTube clips of Brooks Robinson for the Orioles in in the '60s and '70s. Did you follow him at all? No, too too before my time. I mean, obviously, I know the legacy of him. I want to say it was 17 Gold Gloves. I, I may be wrong on that. It might be 19, but it was up there you know, 20 years with one team. I have a huge amount of respect. It was easier back in the day because there wasn't free agency and things like that. But I have huge respect for guys that played their entire career, a Hall of Fame career with one team. So it's certainly an unbelievable legacy. Yeah. Yeah, I watched the New York, the amazing Mets in 1969 beat a heavily favored uh, Robinson and the Orioles in the uh, 69 World Series with Tom Seaver leaving the way, leading the way. And God, that was that was the beginning of my uh, sort of fandom of, of sports, the 69 uh, Jets, the 69 Mets, and the 69-70 New York Knicks, all won championships in the same year. Whew, lucky for you, your, uh, your fandom, although it's only gone down since then. <laughs> <laughs> well, and now, remember, my kids remind me of this, uh, and we'll do this before we take the next break. Uh, I got to see, you know, the bookends of the Larry Bird Celtics, the Michael Jordan Bulls, uh, all the way to the Tom Brady Patriots. And I, I realized I've had it really good as a fan. You've got to see some incredible things. It hasn't always been a championship for your teams, but you've gotten to be a part of some incredible sports history, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, Brady. I want to talk about what I think is the most fascinating human and media sports story going. And that's Dion primetime Sanders at call at the university of Colorado football program. I am obsessed with this story. I follow it every day on social media. I'm fascinated by whether he can keep this blitz going, especially if he, uh, if, if he loses football games, uh, but this story's got it all: uh, pizzazz, talent, uh, uh, you know, uh, not to mention politics, race. Uh, the guy is brilliant, uh, and I, I'm just fascinated by whether a guy can succeed um, by pursuing, by being so loud about it. I guess is what I want to get to. I think it's a fascinating story. What do you think about primetime Sanders? I mean, I think it has all the elements that you just said. Um, I think it is a fascinating story. I think it is a human interest story. Um, I ultimately like Dion, and I think what people have to realize is that, and, and he has said this before in various other things just about his life. He's like, there are times to be Dion, and there are times to be prime. Like, 
And this is what people don't realize, right? Like people think that he is only one way. Well, no, he's very skilled at being who he needs to be when he needs to be it. Okay. The, the 55 year old guy may not love Dion at the podium. You know who loves the way Dion talks? 17 year old kid. Okay. Yeah. When Dion is being prime and he's recruiting kids, they, they want to hear this stuff, right? They want to see the flash. They want to see what I can become. They want to hear that stuff. Their parents might need to hear Dion, and he knows when to turn that on as well. He is, at the, at the end of the day, when you are a college coach, you are a handful of things, right? You are a coach, but you are a teacher, you are a mentor. You are also a salesperson. And Deion Sanders is an incredible salesperson for the University of Colorado, right? Wherever he is, he is an incredible salesperson. He is able to sell his school. He is able to sell that community. He is able to sell that program. Now, ultimately, yes, when you're at that level, you do need to win games. And in year one, he's going to be given a grace period to go, you know, six and six or seven and six or whatever that are going to end up finishing. He can't go seven and six all the time. Eventually, if you're mediocre and loud, people will not be excited by it. And eventually the message will wear off. But for right now, it absolutely plays. It absolutely works. Look at the money that's been brought into that program, right? From T-shirt sales and jersey sales and sweatshirt sales and ticket sales. They're, they're on TV every week. It's a sellout at all of their home games. They draw huge crowds on the road. College game day was in Boulder, Colorado. I don't know the college game day's ever been in Boulder, Colorado, at least that I've been paying attention to it. So he has put this program, a, a program that used to be really good. Like Colorado won a title, if I recall, in the 90s. They had a Heisman Trophy winner in Rashawn Salam in the 90s. It's been a doormat for 25 years. And he has single-handedly brought this program back to life in year one. And he is a he is a great showman, but he's a showman when he needs to be. And he, you know, you said when he played baseball, baseball was about Dion. Football was about Prime. Like he knew which sport required which personality, and he knows in life what situation requires what personality. And I think he's really good at it. Am I correct in in saying that? This uh, this this transfer portal thing, where players can move more easily between programs, makes it easier for Deion Sanders to upgrade the Colorado program, and and makes it makes him able to do that faster. Yes, of course. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of bad in the transfer portal, but there's a lot of good too. And one of the good things is that a program can go from really bad to really good overnight. And, you know, it used to be like, maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later, but like you look at UVM hockey, right? Like UVM hockey went through a real downtime and hockey is a sport where you're recruiting guys like three, four years out. So when UVM hires a new coach and you're like, okay, when's the next time they're going to be good? You're like, well, it's going to be like three years before he even gets his guys in there. And then those guys are going to have to get older. So you're looking at like a five-year window when you're talking about right. how long it takes to improve in college hockey. Not that way anymore, especially in college football, especially when you're a guy like Dion and you can go and start plucking guys from all over the country. You have the resume that backs it up. You've won where you were previously at Jackson State, and you have the personality that he has. You can go and, you know, just like in the NFL – you can go and bring in 30 new players if you want to. And guess what? You don't have a salary cap. 
So as long as you have the, the scholarships available, you can go bring in an entire roster overnight. Now, you'll have issues maybe about team chemistry and all that junk, but it can be done, and it can be done quickly. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm going to keep following that. It's a fascinating story. Okay. Let's pivot to UVM. Hockey, basketball, uh, men's, women's, other sports that I'm I'm missing. It, it, what's uh, give it, give us some UVM highlights? What we sh- what we should be looking for this season? I think generally, this is the healthiest the athletic department at UVM has been from an on field, on court, on ice perspective in the entirety of my eight years now in Vermont. Right, like. You look at the UVM men's basketball team, they're the preseason favorites to win the American East title. You look at the UVM women's basketball team, they're the preseason favorites to win the American East title. You look at the UVM women's hockey team, which Jim Plumer has done a great job building up. They are a program that was under 500 habitually and now is capable of finishing top two or three in Hockey East, which is the best conference in the country. So they are really good. They've got players going into multiple players, playing in world championships, multiple players playing in the Olympics. So that program is good. The UVM men's hockey team went through another tough setback this year with the situation that happened with Todd Woodcroft, but the program was on the rise under Woodcroft, and they've already come out and won a handful of games this year and gotten a couple of points in Hockey East play. I don't think they're going to be a team that finishes in the top half of Hockey East this year, but they're not going to be a team, I think, that finishes last in Hockey East this year either, which is an improvement from where they have been over the last couple of years prior to Woodcroft and now Steve Wheeler getting there. Men's soccer, disappointing end of their season, but they got to the Elite Eight last year. Men's lacrosse is a consistent contender for the NCAA tournament. Women's lacrosse has been in the NCAA tournament. So this is as healthy from a on-field, on-court perspective as I can remember UVM athletics being. And and what role uh, does athletic director Jeff Shulman play in that? Do you credit the coaches for all of this, or does Shulman play a major role? Um, I, I mean, look, ultimately you hire good people, and there have been some hires under Shulman's watch that have, have not worked, but ultimately you have you hire good people, and then you have continuity as well, right? I think for so long – or, or the thought process is always that, okay, when you come to UVM, well, it's like, okay, how long do you have to stay until you can bounce up somewhere bigger, right? Oftentimes we think about coaches wanting to grow their own careers. And, you know, they'll start somewhere small and they'll come to UVM and they'll stay there for a little bit and then they'll go on to somewhere bigger. There's been amazing continuity right now in the athletic department um, outside of men's hockey for the last couple of years. John Becker has been at men's basketball for over a decade. Elisa Kresge now is in, like her fourth season as UVM women's basketball coach, they dealt with a tough situation a couple of years ago. She's come in and stabilized it, right? She didn't just immediately look to jump ship once they had success at the end of last season. Jim Flumer has been there the entirety of the time that I've been here and then some when it comes to women's hockey and, uh, you know, uh, Rob Dow over at men's soccer has been there for, you know, now six years or so. So it hasn't been a place that has just been like, okay, we're going to come, we're going to stay for a little bit, and then we're going to leave. There's been this continuity, and when you have continuity, you get continued success, and you get continued success, you get recruiting ability, and you get better players in there consistently, and they've been able to do that. Uh, Brady, uh, in, the, in the few minutes we have left, I want to switch to Vermont high school sports and for a general question, and that is as Vermont's student population shrinks and uh, schools consolidate, 
what does that mean for for Vermont high school sports? Well, I mean, I think it becomes just less people playing Vermont high school sports, yeah. which is obviously nothing that anybody wants to, to think about, right? I mean, high school sports is an unbelievable thing for communities. And as programs fold or programs consolidate, you probably see less people playing. And clearly there is a reason these programs are consolidating. Either there aren't enough people in these towns anymore to fill these schools like there used to be, or there's less people that want to play sports in the first place. And I do think we are seeing that nationally, right? We can talk, you know, there's all this stuff about, okay, video game culture and all this stuff and people being less active. And that's all true, I'm sure. And that all contributes to it also. But, you know, Vermont having an aging population means there's less young people here, which means there's less opportunity to play or less people there to play. So I I certainly don't think it's a good thing. I'm glad that programs are willing to consolidate so that kids aren't shut out entirely. But I certainly would prefer it be like it was when you or I grew up, where every town had their high school and had their teams and they were all filled. Yeah. 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 It's it's a. In in the Upper Valley, we saw when I used to coach basketball at Sharon Academy in, in the D4 level, and uh, we saw some consolidations. And they're hanging; people are hanging on there. But you're right; it's, it's uh, sports are less and less of a of a, a core element to people's lives. So, uh, okay, couple of last questions. I, I'm fascinated by. I mean, you are a sports guy all the time, and I, you know, I'm a politics guy most of my time, and people are shocked when they hear how I keep up. What's your day like in terms of reading, listening, and watching uh, sports? How does it, how do you do it every day? Email, text, Instagram, social media, TV. How does your day break down so you can keep up with the sports scene? TV, TV, social media, and some reading. Um, generally, you know, we'll play between 10 and 20 audio clips on the, uh, on the afternoon news service as part of the sports program there. And that will come from a largely wide kind of scale sports view, right? It'll be, there will be a lot of regional stuff, but there will be a lot of national stuff as well. So I will go through starting about 8 in the morning and find that audio so that will give me a good basis to what people are saying, right? I've just I've heard all these audio clips. I've edited them all. I've cut them all down. I've made them from two minutes long to 20 seconds long. So I've listened to them. I've digested them. I've edited them. We'll do that from 8 o'clock until 9 o'clock or so. Then it'll be scouring social media, seeing what people are saying, looking at highlights. Um, you know, was there anything I missed the night before? If so, I'll go to YouTube and check out kind of long-form highlights on games or on things people are talking about. Was there a controversial hit in a hockey game was there a controversial end of game scenario here that a ref miss a call somewhere i'll go find that stuff on social media then it's planning our show you know i'll talk to danny about kind of what we want to talk about and kind of what audio clips we want to use in the show and what do we want to build it around then it's booking guests for the show which is something you'll know you know all too well from this show Then it's doing the show and then it's uh you know coming home and kind of immediately you know, checking in or watching entirely with what's going on. You know, the show goes till 7. You get home at 7.30. By that point, the games have already started. So are you catching the Bruins game in the second period on? Are you catching the Celtics game from the second quarter on? Did the Celtics game start at 8 like it did the other day so you can watch the entirety? What's UVM doing? So, um, you know, kind of the minute you're home, you're you're watching things 
and then you're on social media. Okay, what are people saying about what I'm seeing? Okay, that guy just left the game. Do we have a word on an injury, et cetera? And, you know, then when the game is over, you are back on social media. What the post-game press conference say? What's Jason Tatum saying about the end-of-game situation, which they just lost to the Timberwolves? What are, you know, what are nationally people saying about what's happened to the Patriots? Because now I'm getting more and more perspectives. So it, it truly is an all-encompassing day. I think working in sports is working in the candy aisle of life. I'm never going to complain about it, but it certainly is an all-encompassing day. Yeah, it's just unbelievable. <laughs> uh, we, have, we have time to take a quick call from, I think it's Brian in Eden. Hey, Brian, you're on the show with Brady Farkas. Hey, I had to take advantage of it. It's not often I have Brady in such a situation here for a shout-out publicly. Um I just got to say, he's all business. He's so professional, but he does this mix of his personal stories on his show and being all business about sports. And it is just fantastic and masterful. And I just can't say enough about it. It's great. Take care. Oh, you're you're kind, you you're kind to call, Brady. You get to respond. The mail, Brian. Thank you for listening. Much appreciated. <laughs> Okay, uh, a couple of lightning questions. If you're not listening to the Brady Farkas show, what is your favorite sports radio or TV show out there that you respect? Colin Cowherd, Dan Patrick, or anybody else I'm missing? Colin Cowherd, one. Um, probably Dan Patrick nationally, too. But I'll, I'll get away a little bit and listen to some stuff that benefits just my personal fandom. So. I like to listen to the Brock and Falk show out of ESPN in Seattle a lot. My my son in Washington, D.C. listens to the Sports Junkies, which I just can't believe, but he listens every day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, always, okay. always need a good local show. Okay. Greatest sports event of all time in, that you witnessed. Mine was the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team win over the Soviets. But is there a, is there an event all time that just you could go watch again and again and again? Um, not an event because I tend to not like to watch sporting events that have already happened that I already know the uh, already know the outcome to. But I will go to YouTube every once in a while, and I will pull up the 1995 Seattle Mariners season-end highlight video and watch that over and over again. Uh, I was six years old. It was the first great sports memories that I had was of that team. They got to the playoffs. They overcame a 14-game deficit in August to get to the playoffs. They beat the Yankees from two games to none down. In the division series, they got to their first-ever ALCS that year. Ken Griffey Jr. at the height of his powers. Randy Johnson at the height of his powers. Um, the late, great broadcaster Dave Niehaus here on those calls over and over again. So the 95 Mariners My Oh My commemorative video I will go pull up on YouTube uh, probably once a month to watch a little bit of. <laughs> yeah, I, I go back and pull up uh, the Willis Reed Game 7 against the Lakers in the 1970. Uh, an injured Willis Reed willing the Knicks to the championship. I do that myself. Uh, there you go. It's, it's, yeah, it's, so Brady, last question in the minute, in the minute or so we have left, where's sports going? Uh, you know, it's a bigger business than ever. 
are we ever gonna are we gonna lose the the reason why we watch sports in the first place because it gets too commercial or is that protected? No, we're going to be fans always. Um, the games themselves, the sports leagues themselves, are bigger business than always. We as fans are always going to be frustrated by something that that um, you know represents and kind of how ownership views it as more of a business rather than a civic duty, which is how we would like them to view our teams. You know, our, our owners are not all in to win. They are in to make money. That is going to frustrate us, but we as fans are always going to be invested. And, you know, unfortunately in the world of social media, Kevin, just like in the world of politics, as you see, there's more tribalism than ever that comes with sports fandom. And, uh, you know, I think that's an unfortunate downside of it. I think sports like politics causes a whole lot of, uh, anger and frustration among people. I wish it wasn't that way. I wish it was more of a unifying factor rather than us versus you, but that is the way that it is. And that's the way it's going to continue to be as the world gets more divisive, but force is still the best unifier out there. It's just also divisive like everything else. Great way to end. Brady Farkas, uh, always great to talk to you about sports and everything else in life. Thanks so much for joining us. Kevin, thanks for the opportunity. You do a great job. I'm a big fan of your show, and uh, I look forward to uh, listening again tomorrow. Thanks. Okay. Brady Farkas, uh, we got to go. That's our show for today. Uh, our thanks to guest Brady Farkas, Jared Duval. I'm always looking for guests who will provoke us, inform us, and challenge us, so please send me your suggestions. Hit me up on Twitter or Vermont Viewpoint at RadioVermont.com. Our goal is always to illuminate and inform have some fun along the way. Remember, you can stream the show live or listen later as a podcast at WDEVradio.com. I'm here Wednesdays and Fridays. A reminder, uh, I'm, I, I might not be here Friday, and if so, we're going to play a best of Vermont viewpoint in my place. I have to get on an airplane, and uh, I'm not sure I can, I can figure it out, but we're going to continue to try. You can find me at KevinKLS.com, where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter called conflict of interest. Our show is produced by me, engineered by me, made possible by the folks at WDEV, Lee Cattell, Greg Titus, Danny McGivergan, and everybody at WDEV. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we'll see you right back here next time on Vermont Viewpoint, live radio on the friendly pioneer, WDEV. WDEV.